All right, tonight we have two announcements. The first announcement is don't forget the annual congregational meeting is going to be on Sunday, the, uh, February the 9th, and that will immediately follow the morning uh, worship, worship service. And we encourage anybody to come, even if you're not a member, there's only going to be one item to vote on and only members can vote. But it's a good way to communicate to the congregation a lot of uh, basically administrative management kind of things that go on. And there's some things that we do need to talk about and make people aware of, and that's a more appropriate time to do it. And so we encourage you to stay. And if you're a live streamer, we definitely encourage you to stay and, uh, and, and listen in on what's going on. And then Bryce has a uh, report on DBM and some inter- very fascinating statistics off of the, uh, the website and how that's being accessed and used around the world. So everybody will be encouraged uh, by that information. The second announcement is that we have a, I don't know what you call it, but an AED out here. And that is for, I forget what that stands for. What does it stand for? Yeah, it's a defibrillator. So in case somebody's having a heart attack, you can get it and grab it and do CPR and use it. But we don't have anybody right now who's who's currently certified. Cheryl was an instructor, but she's not uh, currently certified right now. But one of the coaches at my CrossFit gym where I work out also is, teaches at Kincaid, and she's offering a class. And it's open to anybody, not just to gym member gym members on Saturday morning, February the 8th, and it'll be approximately 10 o'clock. I don't know how long it's going to last, but um, they'll have all the equipment there and everything, and it's $50, which is a pretty cut-rate cost. Uh, She said the materials and everything cost 46, so she normally I probably they probably charge you a hundred. So, and you get your certification, and which is good for a couple of years. So I encourage uh, all the deacons, but but anybody else in the congregation who's interested in that, it's just good to know that there are some people around who are at first aid training and and um, uh, CPR training and everything in case. Uh, God forbid we ever we ever need that. That's it for for announcements. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we open up God's word this evening, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. So uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, if necessary, to confess sin, to admit, acknowledge our sin to God. And uh, he instantly forgives us of those sins and then cleanses us from all other sin that we've forgotten, failed to mention, ignored, or weren't aware of were sins. So we have uh, the opportunity to make sure we're back in right relationship with him, walking by the Spirit. And then after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all your many blessings in our life, and we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and that goes 
far beyond anything we could ask or think. Father, you have given us so much. You have provided us so much. You've given us such a a legacy of freedom in this nation. You have given us a legacy of biblical truth, Bible teaching. There never was a time or a nation in history that had as much access to biblical truth as we have. And Father, we pray that we might not fail this prosperity test, but that we might take advantage of all that is available to us and that we must remember that our, our purpose here in this life is to glorify you in everything that we say, everything we think, everything we do, and that we need to press on to the high calling of Jesus Christ. And now, Father, as we study this evening, we pray that you'd help us to understand the issues of sin, the dynamics of the sin nature, the horrible consequences of sin in the world, in our lives, and families, and and just in the culture, and help us to understand uh, your grace in dealing with and providing for the, for sin. And we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. All right. Well, if you will open your Bibles or your computer or your device of whatever nature to Second Samuel, chapter thirteen. 2 Samuel 13, and we're going to uh, get into a study of this, this chapter, which is the first of several chapters dealing with the sin in David's family. And tonight I'm titling this message, God's Rule Number One, Sin Has Consequences. That's something that people forget. Sin has consequences. So last time we started off with just looking at what the Bible teaches about the sin nature and lust, because this is the problem that we see exemplified in David's family. We see the uh, sexual lust of Amnon towards his half-sister Tamar. We see the power lust of Absalom. We see various other lust patterns going on in these chapters along with a sub-theme of deception that always goes along with sin and carnality. And so we started off last time just trying to understand a little bit about the sin nature through this, this diagram. Now, you don't have anything in your soul that looks like that or in your body that looks like that. This is just a, a schematic to, to help teach uh, the trends, the dynamics, and... and uh, what happens with the sin nature. At the very core of the sin nature is our drive for self. We are so self-oriented. In every sin nature in this room is a big I. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. And you just think it's about you, but it's really about me. And that in turn drives lust patterns. So at the core is arrogance. And this, as I mentioned this on Sunday, arrogance in the scripture goes a little bit of a step beyond pride. We can accomplish something and have a little pride in doing a job well and enjoying the fruits of our labor. We can look at our children who accomplish things and we can be proud of them. But this is something different than the arrogance that is condemned and vilified in the scripture. That is more along the lines of what the classical Greeks described as hubris. When we think more of ourselves than we ought to think. 
And Paul addresses this in Romans 13, says, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. And often that is the case. And because we think more highly of ourselves, we think that that sin doesn't matter. We think that we can get away with it, that it doesn't hurt us, that there won't be any consequences. And we lie to ourselves a lot about the sin that we engage in. But the driving uh, motivational force of our sin nature are the lust patterns. And there's a number of lust patterns. Just turn the TV on tomorrow and watch the Senate in action, and you can probably identify a whole list of lust patterns at operation. You know, we have approbation lust. We all want to get recognized. We all want to get attention. We all want to get approval from others. There's power lust, which will be on display in many different ways there. There's also materialism lust and food lust and drug lust and and um, entertainment lust and all sorts of other lusts that we think will provide us with what we need in life that will make us happy. The sin nature produces in two areas. One we call human good because this is morality. People are often shocked by the idea that the sin nature produces morality. But just just spend some time in any religious cult, such as Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses and and or Pharisaism, and you will see a lot of morality, but it's all generated by the sin nature because if they're not regenerated, if they don't have new life in Christ, if they don't have a human spirit, if they haven't been born again, then there's no new nature. They, all they can do is sin. So our sin nature uh, emphasizes morality. Satan himself will emphasize his, his morality and makes it a part of religion which is one of his greatest tools to deceive and distract and destroy human beings. Personal sins comes from our area of weakness, and every human being has some sins that they're very attracted to and other sins that they just uh, uh, just hate and just won't get involved in at all and that, that really turn them off. But But one year it may be one way with you, and the next year it may be reversed. You never know. We change over the years. And you have people who sit on one side of the uh, church and they look at somebody on the other side and say, I know what some of the secrets for that guy and I can't imagine that they would be in here. Well, they're saying the same thing about you. So we all have these sins and we that, that's not the issue because if we're here, we're all trying to figure out what Scripture says and how to apply it so we can, uh, so we can not let the sin nature control us. So if our human good is in control, we trend towards asceticism and legalism and intellectually in terms of philosophical systems, rationalism, and this leads to a moral degeneracy like that of the, of the Pharisees whom Jesus referred to as, as the, um, a, a, as the uh, uh, children of vipers the seed of vipers, the seed of serpents, going back to uh, the seed of Satan uh, identified with the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He called them whitewashed tombstones. Looked great on the outside, all cleaned up, all orderly, all nice and neat, but on the inside it was just dead men's bones. So that's moral degeneracy. Then on the other side, we have the trend towards immoral degeneracy that is produced by antinomianism, intellectually by irrationalism. This is our culture right here. 
we we have people on the moral degenerate side, but we have a lot of people, a culture that is dominated by the values of antinomianism. Again, watch a lot that goes on in Congress and in the judiciary where you have activist judges who are making things up, making up interpretations of the Constitution that have nothing to do with the intent and purpose of the Constitution or the laws of the land. They're bending those to fit their agenda. They are not taking the time to go back and read the intent of the framers of the Constitution. You go back and you read uh, the Federalist Papers and the counter to that, the Anti-Federalist Papers. You read their writings and diaries. That's how you come to understand the intent of the framers of the Constitution. But if you don't do that, you're just making it up. Same principles of interpretation apply to the Constitution as apply to your trying to figure out the instructions on your income tax. And yes, we're just about on the verge of the new tax season, and you don't look at your instructions in your tax book and say, well, do they really mean how much I made this year, or do they mean how much I, I, I really think I should have made, and but I didn't make enough, or I made too little, and since I had to spend all of this on things that I didn't want to spend it on, I really didn't make it. And There's all kinds of rationalizations people use to change the numbers to benefit themselves. That's just allegorical interpretation for which you'll go to jail. So we can't interpret those things in any other way but a literal manner in the same way that we interpret Scripture. We have to know the intent of the writer in order to correctly uh, interpret it. So this lust issue is what's on display in Second Samuel 13 and following. Now, we looked at some passage just by way of review last time, such as 1 Peter 2.11, which I think is, is a very strong passage. This isn't saying that you can rationalize or justify your fleshly lust and then go confess afterwards. It says abstain. It doesn't say confess your fleshly lust. It says abstain from the fleshly lust, which war against the soul. So it, it, it's, it tells us right there this is destructive, to the soul. It destroys your ability to think clearly at times. It destroys your ability to think logically at all uh, if you continue in these ways, and it leads you to living in a way that is completely divorced from reality. This is the source of uh, mental problems and emotional problems. It's not Freudianism. It's not any of the other forms of psychology it is understanding the dynamics of sin in a person's life and how it destroys their soul. And the only solution to that is the same solution that we've had through the centuries, and that is to get right with God. First of all, by trusting in Christ for salvation, and secondly, by growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter how much you may be down a pit of, of mental and emotional instability, and divorce from reality, if you get with Scripture, God the Holy Spirit can reverse all of that. Colossians 3.5 says that we're to put to death your members, including evil desire, which is lust, and covetousness, which is a form of idolatry. 
Now, I went through several points last week. I'm going to just bring out a few of them at the end. I'm not going to go through all of them, but just to remind you, point number five was that lust leads to a complex of other sins, which may include mental attitude sins such as anger. It can lead to physical sins such as murder, violence, and rape, which is what we see in the context of of 2 Samuel 13. It can lead to war or it can lead to destructive, uh, either emotionally destructive or spiritually destructive or physically destructive behavior in the family or in the, in the workplace. So lust is extremely dangerous and self-destructive. The seventh point, I skipped over what I said for the sixth point. The seventh point is to recognize that these dynamics are described in Genesis 4-7. I have uh, quotes from the New King James and the NASB, but the idea is that sin is crouching at the door. Okay, it's this imagery of a beast that is ready to pounce, ready to devour, ready to destroy. And so we have to be on guard all of the time. And if we don't control it, if we don't say no, then it overwhelms us. And this is what Genesis 4 says, its desire or its lust of sin is to control and to dominate, and that's the idea of the word rule here, is to, is to dominate. It's interesting that the word here uh, for desire is a word that's only used three times in Scripture. Once it's used in a poetic context, in a totally different scenario, in, in approximately 950 uh, B.C., and that's in the Song of Solomon. But it's used twice here in Genesis, once in Genesis 3, once in Genesis 4. It's written by Moses. It was stated by God in the Garden of Eden, so it goes back to the beginning of creation. And in both of these verses, it has the idea not of a positive desire, but of a desire to control, to dominate, and to destroy. And that's the context in Genesis 3 when God tells the woman that your desire will be for the man. And so often people interpreted that as that the woman's going to have a, a love, a sexual desire for her husband. But it's the wrong word for that. This is a word that is a desire to control. It's the consequence of sin. So it's not going to be a good thing. Okay, just context tells you that. It's not going to be a good thing. It's going to be a bad thing. And the reverse is the, one, the man is going to want to rule over you. So it sets up a power struggle in the marriage because of sin. Sin seeks to destroy that which God, God created. So what we see, see here is the relation of sin, number one, in, in personal responsibility, the first divine institution, that sin has consequences. There's personal responsibility and accountability. Number two, sin destroys the uh, dynamic in marriage, but it is only through applying the word of God according to Ephesians chapter 5, husbands loving your wives, wives submitting to your husbands. That reverses the impact of the curse so that that can be overcome through obedience to the Lord. 
And then we see it impact the family as it works itself out through Cain and Abel. So sin seeks to destroy the divine institutions because those are the source of of, uh, real success and prosperity and stability in the human race, which is something that Satan does not want. This is a problem we have today because there are so many philosophical worldviews that are attacking the divine institution. That's happening over and over again. You can't open the paper without getting into political issues that are either an assault on personal responsibility or it's an assault on the biblical view of marriage or it's an assault on the family or it's an assault on the biblical view of government and the biblical view of nations over and over again, and it's all driven by sin. So I used these little pictures last week that often we think of this beast of a sin nature as a cute little cuddly cub that we can control and train and pad, and it's not going to do anything to harm us, but this is what it actually is. It is a voracious beast that seeks to dominate and control. So that we live on the basis of our lust drives, it enslaves and destroys us. So we need to be on a seek and destroy mission in terms of the sin in our life. And I ended up with this ninth point that the solution is to not feed the beast. Not to feed the beast, and it comes down to volition. Galatians 5.16, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not, that's, this is a promise, as well as a directive, that you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But there's some uh, other passages that I didn't get to last week, so I added uh, a a few extra points. Uh, Point number 10 is that the solution is to think in terms of our new identity, who we are in Christ. That's the focal point of Romans chapter 6 that we have a new identity in Christ, and it means that we are dead to sin. It doesn't mean that sin nature is no longer there, but we need to consider ourselves dead to sin. We're not going to let sin reign over us. So Romans 6.11 says, Likewise, you also reckon or consider, think, that's the word there, logizomai, to think about yourself Think yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. And the word death there doesn't mean non-existence. Death always has the idea of separation, that we're separated from the authority of the sin nature. But we are alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, the next verse says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't give it the control. It's up to your volition. When you have these Uh, These statements, reckon yourselves dead to sin and don't let sin reign. These are imperatives, and imperatives give you a binary option. Either do it or don't do it, one or the other. And so the command is given to us because under the power of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit through a knowledge of the Word of God, we can say no to the beast. We can say no to sin. Galatians 5.24 repeats this same idea where Paul says, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. So the sin nature is dead. We're separated from its power. doesn't mean it's removed. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's lusts. So what you have to do is 
is believe that that's true, recognize, recognize that that is true. Those who are Christ have crucified the, the sin nature with its passions and lusts. So live like it. That's what he's saying. Live like this is your new reality. Why do you keep going back and living like you did before you were you were you were saved? That's what the scriptures refer to as the old man. The old man, because of the way the uh, because of the way that the King James version translated that, many people thought that was the sin nature. But you in Ephesians, and I think I have a verse with this. You can't put off the old man. Not until you die. So that doesn't make sense. If the old man is a sin nature, you can't put off the sin nature. You can't remove it. It's putting off everything that you were before you were saved. It's quit thinking and living like you did as a spiritually dead, rebellious, demon-influenced unbeliever. Stop living like that. Stop thinking like that. Stop uh, thinking according to the systems of the world uh, this is what Paul says in Romans 12, too. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And not long after that, in Revelation 12, too, Paul says, but in uh, Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Don't plan on how you're going to have this huge, enormous meal and you're going to gluttonize. Don't plan about how you're going to have a big party and go out and and get drunk over the weekend or how you're going to get high on drugs or how you're going to uh, do whatever it is you're going to do, how you're going to have some uh, sexual liaison with somebody over the weekend. Uh, this is not, no, don't make provision, don't plan don't conspire in your own soul to make provision for the sin nature to fulfill those lusts. Ephesians 4.22, this is a verse I, I alluded to a minute ago, that you put off concerning your former conduct. See, there's the clue to interpreting the old man. It's how we thought, talked, and lived before we were saved. Put off the old man, uh, your former conduct, the old man, uh, who which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So when we operate on the lusts of our sin nature, it corrupts us. It makes war against the soul. Same idea. A couple of interesting passage passages in Paul's last letter before he died, Second Timothy. He said, "For the time will come." When they, that is talking about so-called Christians, will not endure sound doctrine. And they may genuinely be true believers, but they're like the prodigal son. We live in an era like this. I would say 90% of regenerate believers in our country today do not want sound doctrine. They don't want any doctrine. They don't want anybody to tell them how to think or how to live or how to act unless it just happens to be something that they want to do. They are against it. They are basically want to live life the way they want to and don't tell me too much about what God wants. Uh, they will not endure sound doctrine. They want to be entertained. They want to be fed uh, false doctrine because it makes them feel good. But uh, So uh, Paul goes on to say, but what they want is according to their own lusts. So you have a whole segment 
of evangelical Christianity teaching the heresy of health and wealth prosperity, that God wants you to be healthy and God wants you to be wealthy. And if you really want to be extremely wealthy, you need to keep giving more and more money to my ministry. And if you give more and more money to my ministry, then God is just going to give you more and more money. And so you have people who are out there who have these uh, health and wealth ministries, some of whom are uh, close confidants of the president, and they spend all of this money on five, ten, fifteen million dollar mansions, and they have uh, private jets that they uh, fly all over the world. Now, I can see a legitimate reason for some of this, but when it is fueled by a heresy and you're taking money from people under these false pretenses, that's what makes it wrong. And some of them are known to have 24-karat gold commodes in their personal bathrooms. So this is just an abuse of their position and power, but God's going to deal with them eventually. But we have to understand that this is driven by lust. So this is what Paul is alluding to here in 2 Timothy 4.3. People won't endure sound doctrine, but according to their own lust patterns, because they have itching ears, they will heap up to themselves teachers. Then in 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Notice, number one, he says, flee lust. This is illustrated by Joseph. In the Old Testament, when he is a slave in Potiphar's household, and he had grown to be completely, totally trusted by by Potiphar, who was an extremely uh, wealthy uh, Egyptian aristocrat, that when Potiphar would go off on business and would be gone away from the house, he entrusted everything to Joseph. He didn't even he he knew he didn't even have to come in and double check his bookkeeping that it would all be done perfect perfectly. And so when uh Joseph was alone, Potiphar's wife came and tried to seduce him and he fled from her. And she she had tried to embrace him and had a hold of his cloak and so when he left he fled and left his cloak behind. He wasn't going to become enticed just a little bit. He he wasn't going to uh, let himself be be led or just, he wasn't going to play with the little cub of the beast of desire. He knew that it would immediately uh, devour him, so he fled. And that's the imagery here. Flee useful, youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Notice the word there, pursue. So you flee. These are extremely graphic and active verbs. Flee lust, but pursue, just the opposite. Pursue. Make it a an objective in your life. Make it your, your primary uh, objective is to pursue righteousness. And this isn't talking about positional righteousness. You already have that as a believer. It is experiential righteousness. It is the result of walking by the Spirit. Pursue righteousness, pursue faith. That is an increase in your understanding of the Word and your increased ability to trust God in any and all situations. Pursue love, love for one another, and pursue peace. And peace is in the 
New Testament is almost always associated with giving the gospel of peace to those who are unbelievers who are not reconciled to God. Uh, Titus 2.12 echoes this, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. So you flee lust and you deny lust. You say no to yourself. Deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Uh, we, we should live, notice that's the negative and then the positive, we should live soberly. And that doesn't mean that you abstain from alcoholic beverages, otherwise Paul would be contradicting himself when he told Timothy to take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Uh, the Old Testament clearly uh, prohibits drunkenness, but not the consumption of alcoholic beverages. Otherwise, God would be guilty because God wanted a strong drink offering, and strong drink was barley beer. And so God had them bring barley beer as an offering because it was something important and something valuable and something that that people treasured. And when Christ performs his first miracle, he's turning uh, the water into wine, and it was real, true, alcoholic alcoholic wine. So living soberly means to think objectively. It has to do with a mind that is not under the influence of something destructive like your lust patterns. So we're to live with a sound mind, objective thinking, not influenced by our sin nature. We're to live righteously having to do with the standards of our of our lives and godly. And that is living a healthy spiritual life in the present age. So all of that reminds us of the danger of lust, and then we see this living example of the destructiveness of lust and its consequences in 2 Samuel 13. So turn in your device or your Bible or whatever to 2 Samuel 13, or excuse me, turn to Proverbs 16. Turn to Proverbs 16. I'm going to have a little <coughs> understanding of a few passages here in in uh, Proverbs Proverbs 16. And I hope I, that I printed out. No, I didn't print out the wrong notes, but that's okay. I can probably make it work. I think I studied this today. Okay, first verse in Proverbs 16 that I want to talk about is Proverbs 16:4. I put three different translations up here on the screen because the one that you're probably used to hearing is just a really, really bad translation. Proverbs 16.4 in the New King James Version, the Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Now, this is a very, very popular verse among, among uh, double predestinarian Calvinists that God made the wicked for the day of doom. Uh, these are not the elect, but that's not what it says in the Hebrew, okay? The second, I just realized the other screen was off. Oh, no. Let me see if that'll come on. Okay. The um, second translation is the NET, which is better. And that translates it, the Lord works everything for its own ends. Now, that's different from the Lord has made it all for himself. The Lord works everything for its own ends, even the wicked for the day of disaster. That still misses it a little bit. 
A more accurate translation is what I have put there on the screen. The Lord works out everything according to its ends. The principle here is sin has its consequences. And when there is sin, God lets it work itself out in terms of its natural ends or its consequences. And then um, the Hebrew says, uh, according to it, or to its own ends, or literally according to its answer, everything has a response. However, the what's interesting is in the NET, when it translates that last phrase, "even the wicked for the day of disaster," in their footnote, in their footnote, they explain it this way. This is an example of synthetic parallelism. Now, synthetic parallelism means the second line is going to expand on the first line. There's a parallelism, but it, 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 it goes a step further than the first line. The A line states a principle, states a truth. The Lord works out everything according to its own ends. And then the second line expands on it, with an application in some other area, and in this case, a specific application about the wicked. So the Lord works out everything according to its own end. So there are consequences to righteous behavior. There are consequences to sinful behavior. Now, in the case of sinful behavior or the wicked, the text goes on to say, and the way the NET translates is probably the best, whatever disaster comes their way, is an appropriate correspondent for their life. They're sort of paraphrasing a little bit to get the idea across. Whatever disaster comes their way is an appropriate correspondent for their life. In other words, they're going to get what they deserve. Sin has its consequences. Now, that's a totally different idea than what you get in the New King James Version. But that's what the thrust of this verse is saying, is that, that God brings about the consequences, and those consequences for the wicked correspond to what they have done. Sin has has its consequences. The second verse I want to look at in Psalm 16.2 also uh, isn't as badly translated. In the New King James, it states, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. In other words, we all look at our lives and think we are holier than thou. We all look at our own lives, lives, we make decisions, and we think we're making good decisions from right motives. But not always do we make good decisions from right motives. But the Lord weighs the spirits. In Proverbs 16.2, in the NET, it says, All a person's ways seem right in their own opinion. See, that's what it means right in their own eyes. They think it's the right thing. Later, there's a couple of a verse repeated twice in Proverbs that says there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. So you, you think you're doing the right thing, but it's going to end up in, in uh, tragedy. All a person's ways seem right in his own opinion, but the Lord evaluates the motives. See, the New King James is funny. It says the Lord weighs the spirit. Sounds like he's got a bottle of scotch out and putting it on the on the scale. No, he weighs the attitude. He weighs the motives. So you've all heard this statement. 
that right actions must include right methods. This is one of the problems I kept running into in seminary is that when you get into certain areas such as homiletics, which is preaching, or Christian education or apologetics, people think any method that works is okay. Okay, You go to many churches in this city and you will find people teaching wrong things, but they get a big crowd, so God must be working. Back when I was doing research on the vineyard movement in the 80s in power evangelism, I heard one of their pastors say that we just try anything, no matter what it is, and if, if it seems to have success, then God must be behind it. But that, that's false teaching, and that's exactly what dominates so many te- churches today. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Wrong way has to do with methodology. There's a right methodology, a biblical way to do it, and and a human viewpoint way to do it. Uh, And evangelism isn't salesmanship. And we've been plagued by too many people who teach evangelism as if they're selling Amway. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a right way. You have a right methodology, but you're doing the wrong thing. That is wrong. Only a right thing done in a right way is right. Now let's apply that to motivation. A right thing done for the wrong reason is wrong. You have bad motives. You're doing the right thing. You're going to go to church. You're going to witness. You're going to memorize scripture, read your Bible, but you're doing it to impress God so it's wrong. Your motivation is wrong, so it's wrong. A wrong thing done for a right reason is is wrong. This is the sincere motive rationale. Oh, but I was so sincere. God told me to do this. I thought God wanted me to do this. So I did that. All I wanted to do was please God. All I wanted to do was help that person. But what you did was wrong, no matter how sincere you were. You were just sincerely wrong. Only a right thing done for the right reason, uh, for the right reason is right, for the right motive. You've got to have the right motive. And God looks on the heart. He knows the motive as well as the action. And so he's going to evaluate it, and it all comes out. Uh, we'll all be taken care of at the judgment seat of Christ. Unfortunately, he's going to judge in grace, so we don't have to sweat too much. Third verse in this section is Proverbs sixteen five. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. That's interesting. We could apply that to Psalm 2, 1 and 2. We could apply that to the Tower of Babel, that they are proud. This is the arrogance of living apart from God and trying to be God, trying to dominate. Everyone proud, everyone arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces like they did at the Tower of Babel in international globalism, or like they will in the future, the international globalism, when the kings of the earth are in rebellion against God, uh, they will not go unpunished. The NET translates that the Lord abhors every arrogant person. Rest assured that they will not go unpunished, either in this life or the next. The trouble is we don't always see it, and we really want to see it to make sure that God, God, let God truly punish them. 
And we want to be the ones to define what that punishment should be like for it to be just. And, and fortunately, nobody should be thinking that about us. So that's the background. Now let's look at 2 Samuel 13. We look at this issue. Sin has consequences. That uh, God looks on the heart and sees the motives. And that God's justice is going to uh, punish those who are guilty. They will, will receive their punishment. So we get into 2 Samuel 13. And we see this horrible story about Amnon, his lust for his half-sister Tamar, which leads him to come up with a plan uh, where, which involves the rape of Tamar. And then when, uh, when that is discovered by her full brother, Absalom, then Absalom, in self-righteousness and in power lust, determines to kill Amnon. That's a part of this story that is usually not clearly understood but is often overlooked. And so the background for understanding what is going on here in chapter 13, it has to do with David, and he has an heir problem, not a hair problem. Okay, David has an heir problem. Now, here's a couple of interesting things here. David had seven wives. Bathsheba is his seventh wife, and Solomon is going to be his seventh son. Solomon is the one that is God's designated heir, that is the one through, through whom the Davidic promises in the Davidic covenant will go. Solomon, Solomon had... Well, he, Solomon had like six or seven hundred wives and three or four hundred concubines. I always wanted to know what would a guy with six or seven hundred wives want with five or six hundred, with th- two or three hundred concubines. But it wasn't until recently that I realized that David has seven sons mentioned in Scripture. How many of Solomon's wives produced children for Solomon? There's only one mentioned in Scripture, and that's Rehoboam. In a lot of cases in the ancient Near East, the harems, which is what that was, which was very common practice with the kings in the ancient Near East, the harems were for show. So we don't know whether or not Solomon was engaged in a a, a lot of sexual promiscuity with all of these wives, but he's not producing other children at all. You would think that he would have produced a few more children with that many wives and concubines, but the only child that is mentioned is Rehoboam. David has an heir problem because he has all these sons. To whom is the kingdom going to go? Who's going to inherit the throne? So we read in 2 Samuel 3, 2, Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess. So this is early on when he's just ruling in Hebron, and his firstborn is Amnon. Amnon is the key player here. Amnon is the firstborn, so he would be the one designated the heir. But you've got a jealousy problem with 
with um, um, Absalom because Absalom wants the throne. This is the start of the Absalom conspiracy that goes through the subsequent chapters, that Absalom wants the throne, and he's he's going to use this as a way to figure out how to eliminate his rivals. But there's other things that are going on here. Amnon's mother is a Jezreelitess. So uh, the Jezreel Valley, I'm not sure how to clear that. Um, Let me see. Is there a clear button? Eddie? I'm afraid to hit anything. There it went. I guess that. Okay, so here's the Jezreel Valley, otherwise known as the Valley of Megiddo. This is where uh, the battle of the staging for Armageddon. Uh, this is the valley here where the staging takes place. And Jezreel is, is a village that's located right about here. So she's from the north. She's not from the tribe of Judah. Then we look at the second born is Kiliab, who is born uh, by Abigail, the widow of Naval the Carmelite. So she's from this area very close to that, which is Mount Carmel, which is located uh, just to the northwest of Megiddo. Here's Megiddo, so it's located up here just to, just to the northwest, again from the nor- northern tribes. The third son is Absalom, the son of Maacha, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Now, we all read past that. We need to look this up. So here's the map. Geshur is up here uh, just to the north of what we now call the Golan Heights, which is referred to as Bashan in other parts of the scripture. Uh, what is just to the northwest is Aram. Is Geshur part of the Aramean uh, allotment up there, the, the Aramean nation that is pressing down from the, from the north? And when we look at this map where we see the extent uh, of, the, of Solomon's power in this, this area, is it, it extends pretty far up north, and some of these areas were subdued, but they weren't conquered. Okay, They didn't become part of Israel. But we see that Geshur and Aram are very close. So this is um, the, the... So, so uh, Absalom's grandfather is the king of Geshur. After this is over with, he's going to flee there and live there for three years. So this, this he's, he's got alliances to those who are at least in competition with Israel, if not their, uh, not their enemy. Then you have uh, the fourth son is Adonijah, the son of Haggith. We're not told where the rest of the wives are from. The fifth is Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth is Ithrium by David's wife, Eglah. These are all born to David in Hebron. So David's got a problem with who's going to be the heir. And the two that are at the top who are competitive are Amnon and uh, Absalom. Now, when we get into this uh, episode here, let's just kind of read through the text. Some of it's pretty self-explanatory. What we see at the beginning is that Absalom, um, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister. So Tamar is his full sister. They both have the same mother and father, who, of course, is David. Uh, her name is Tamar, and Amnon, who is a half-brother, Amnon is 
in he its text says he loved her but as we've talked about the word love has a broad meaning okay it's not a technical for an a love of integrity it doesn't necessarily mean god's love or man's love it has a lot of meanings and here it just means he had lust for her he is dominated by a sexual physical desire uh to have her and yet he can't get too close to her. Uh, Amnon was distressed, verse 2, over his sister Tamar, that he became sick, he physically ill from this. And, and this is all mental attitude. He has created this. He's let the lust war against his soul so much that it's created this physical uh, depression, and he's losing weight, and he's moping around, he's miserable so that others can see this. And the cause for this is because, A, she is, because she is a virgin. And as a, the virgin daughter of the king, she was destined to marry another king, another king of a large nation, a powerful nation. She would be married in a way that would cement an alliance. And so she had a wonderful uh, future in, in front of her. But Amnon is going to destroy that. He's going to take everything away from her because of its lust. And that's one of the things you see here is that when sin is in control, it destroys other people's lives. It destroys innocent people's lives. And in doing this, he is going to treat her as if she is, is, is just a bag of trash. And this is unfortunately what happens when men are dominated by their sin nature throughout history is that's what uh, God refers to there in the curse in Genesis 3. The, hus- the wife's desire is to control the husband, but the husband's desire is to dominate and tyrannize the wife. This, these are the trends of the sin nature. And so you constantly have had uh, this trend in the sin nature when when men uh, uh, abuse and control and put down and dominate women, and it's only when Christ- biblical Christianity comes in that you see women truly elevated to a position of honor and respect, and it doesn't happen through paganism. And what has happened with the rise of modern feminism, it's destroyed true biblical womanhood because women are encouraged to be like men. And what's the result of of 150 years of this? We've got people who don't know whether they're a man or a woman. Somebody said, well, it's real easy. Just look in your underpants. But we have people today who can't figure out what they are or on a scale of 72 different options, they have no idea what, what, what their gender is. It's led to confusion. It's led to much more uh, hostility between the say. Just like you had President Obama came along and, okay, we're going to have a black president. We're going to solve the problems between the races. And there's more racial division today than there was before because liberal solutions are built on a pagan foundation and they lead to self-destruction because they're built on arrogance and independence from God and they will never solve the problems. And so feminism has done more to destroy marriage and the family and therefore the American culture than anything 
uh, other, well, you can name a few other things that have been just as important. But once you destroy the marriage and family, you'll destroy a culture and you'll destroy a population and you'll destroy a nation. And so you see the, this exemplified here. The worst of male aggression is exemplified in Amnon. And so she's, but, but Tamar is guarded. She's protected. She's not in a, separated into a harem, but she would have been uh, watched over and guarded and protected because uh, she, she was a person that, that, that was valuable and significant. So Amnon, in his wasted state, goes to a friend named Jonadab, who's his cousin. He's the son of David's brother, Shemaiah. And we're told in the text that Jonathan's a very crafty man. And the word here is a noun from the, uh, related to the word hochma for wisdom. And so he, he's in a position of wisdom. Some have said he might be even in a position as a counselor in David's, uh, David's cabinet, as it were, in David's admini- administration. But the problem is, Jonadab is not, does not indicate that he has any understanding of biblical truth or any spiritual life. And so he's going to offer very foolish, destructive advice. And that's the word Nabal from the same name as Nabal in the story of Abigail and Nabal, which indicates a destructive uh, foolishness. This is the same thing that we see in the pseudo-wisdom of Romans 1, those who reject the knowledge of God, suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. That's in the previous verse. And in Romans one twenty one, we read, because although they knew God, this is talking historically after the flood, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts, empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools. And you can go to many university campuses today where you have professors who are espousing uh, global warming, uh, climate change is caused by man, they're espousing evolution, they're espousing Freudian and other forms of psychotherapy. They're espousing Marxism and socialism and all sorts of anti-American views, and they are fools. They claim to be wise because they have so many degrees and they've had so much education, but they're just educated fools. And that's what Scripture says. It doesn't matter how many degrees they have. It doesn't matter how uh, how technically savvy they are in physics or chemistry or medicine or biology. They've rejected God, and therefore they are, uh, they are fools. And so this is Jonadab. He is a very wise man. Uh, that's the word there. It's not the idea of... Uh, one translation uses the word subtle, like, like the serpent is the more subtle of God's creatures. It's not the, that's the word arum. That's not the word that's used here, so it's not, not talking about that. It's talking about wisdom. And in verse 4 we read, And he said to him, so Jonadab sees him and says, You're skinny. You're losing weight. What's going on here? You're pining away. What's going on? Why are you sick? And Amnon says, Oh, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab says, Lie down on the bread. He conspires. He comes up with this plan. What you need to do is fake an illness. 
You're going to be really sick. And then finally, David, your father, will come to see you. And when he does, then you... Uh, deceive him and ask him to send Tamar to come and prepare your food. Now, this should have tipped David off. But David's got another problem now because David lost his moral high ground when he uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and when he had Uriah killed. And this is a known reality in the family. And so uh, he's got difficulties trying to be uh, the, the the source of moral guidance for, for his family. And I also think another element here is that parents are often blind to what their children are doing either intentionally, they, don't, they just don't want to know, or in another sense, they don't know what to do about it, so they're just hoping against hope it isn't what they think it is. And that happens with a lot of parents, and parents need to be more engaged with their children, they need to know what's going on on their computers and their tablets and their phones. And there's so much that's going on today that is so destructive for kids. You have sexting going on in junior high and elementary school. There's just a lot that's, that's happened that, that, that is destructive to kids. And parents need to be very engaged, very active, and on top of these things, all the time, and David's not on top of it, so he bears some culpability for this. Uh, he's he's not seeing the the, the warning signs here. Uh, why in the world would Amnon want Tamar to be the one to bring him food and to prepare food for him? Does she have some sort of reputation as a five star chef, or, or or what would be involved here? So Amnon fakes it. He. Um, David comes to see him. He he carries out the plan and wants her to make these cakes. Interesting word here. These cakes are just baked goods, but the word that describes them is a word based on the Hebrew word lev, which is the word for heart. So it's some sort of heart-shaped pastry. Now, get that anglicized or modern view of a heart shape out of your head because this is ancient Near Eastern culture, so we don't know what a heart shape was for them, but that seems to be the indication of this word. It was some sort of a heart-shaped pastry, and this was some sort of comfort food that, that he needed, and then he would be, he would be well. So David gets sucked into this conspiracy, and and he sends to Tamar and says uh, for her to come to and go to Amnon's house to prepare, prepare the food. And so Tamar does that. And in verse 8, we read that he's lying down, and she takes the flour. She needs it. She goes through the whole process of baking the cakes, and then she brings it to him, but he's not going to eat. He's not going to eat. And then he says... For everyone to leave. Now, these are her guards. These are her chaperones. That's who's there. Other family members and the guards and chaperones who are to protect her. And they all leave. So this is a real damning statement against David for not protecting his daughter. And so everybody leaves. And then he says to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And so now this, she ought to be, have a few red flags going off now as he's trying to get her back into the bedroom. 
and to feed him by hand. And so they go back. And then when we're told in verse 11, when she brought the food to him, he grabs her and says, come lie with me, my sister. It was an almost identical phrase, except for the phrase, my sister, that occurs in Genesis 39. In Genesis 39, we have the story of Potiphar's wife, who's trying to seduce Joseph. And she grabs Joseph, and she says the exact same words, same language. She says, come lie with me, which is a euphemism for having sexual relations. And so um, he tries to seduce her, and look at what she says in verse 12. She answered him and says, here, I have this up on the screen here. She answers him, and she says, no. Then she says, do not force me, for no such thing has been done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Three times she says no. Hey, buddy, what part of no don't you understand? Three times she makes it very clear and that this is a a disgraceful thing. That's because in the Mosaic law, this is prohibited. This incest between a woman and a half-brother is still prohibited as incest in uh, Leviticus 18, uh, verses 6, 9, 11. Uh, None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness, another euphemism for sexual relations. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. And so when it says the daughter of your father or the daughter of your mother, that indicates a half-sister relationship. Verse 11, the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter. So this is someone who is not a half-sister but a stepsister. Still, no uh, relationship. Uh, or here, excuse me, I misinterpreted that. Begotten by your father, so she's a half sister. You shall not uncover her her nakedness. Leviticus twenty verse fourteen: If a man marries a woman and her mother, it is wickedness. So that's prohibited. All of these are all part of what is defined in Scripture as as incest. Now, the story goes on. Because once this happens, he is going to force her. He rapes her and takes her. And afterwards, he immediately reverses. Instead of lusting and desiring for her, now that he has gratified himself, he hates her. And in many cases, you have when rapes end up in murder, it is because of self-loathing afterwards. A person has satisfied their lust, and now they hate themselves for it, and they take it out on the victim, and they kill their victim. That's just one scenario. Uh, There are, of course, many other scenarios. But we see this exemplified uh, many different ways and many different times that, unfortunately, once a man has forces sexual relations on a woman, whether it's seducing her or raping her, that afterwards he just doesn't care. He's just not involved. It just means nothing now. I just satisfied myself. Because it's all about me, it's not about love. It's not about you. It's just about me. And so the woman is just uh, thrown to the side and doesn't care what the consequences are, what this means for her. And in verse 15, then Amnon hated her exceedingly 
so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. So now she tries to protect herself, and so this won't happen, and this end is worse than the other. There's nothing for her now. There's no future. He's stolen her future. He's, he's destroyed her future. There's nothing for her. No one in that culture is going to want to marry a woman who has been raped. That isn't going to happen. So there'll be no children, no family, no future. He's destroyed it all. So he calls for a servant and tells him to throw her out and lock her out. So she goes home. She puts on a different robe than the robe that the virgin daughters would wear. And so she goes into mourning, verse 19, putting ashes on her head, tears up her robe of many colors because it no longer indicates that she is, is a virgin. And now she is just left alone. And Absalom hears about this and comes to her and says, has Absalom your brother has Amnon, your brother, been with you and done this? And, and he then says, but now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. Now, if you're a woman and you've just been raped by anyone, you do not want to hear somebody come along and say, now, now, just don't take this too seriously. This is just another example of an absolutely callous, self-centered man, but Absalom is going to, immediately he's thinking about how he can use this because he'll take vengeance upon Amnon and that will clear one competitor off the board for the throne. So one competitor for the throne will be, will be removed. So he sets up uh, this uh, situation during a time of a party and that's what comes up in the last part of the chapter is this description of this sheep shearer event. Now, this is like it, like with the harvest party at the end of the growing season when harvest takes place. You've been working hard all year long, uh, taking care of all the crops, and now the crops are in, and the harvest is over with, the work is done, and it would be a time of great celebration. Same thing with the sheep shearing. This isn't just, okay, we go out and we shear the sheep. No, this, once it's done, it's a huge celebration in an agricultural uh, culture. And so he's going to have this great celebration, and he goes to David, and he's got a plan. He wants to invite the king and his servants, and somehow he probably knew that they weren't going to come. And so he encourages them, urges them to come. And when David says no, he says, well, at least send Amnon. At least send one representative of the royal family. He's the heir apparent, so please send Amnon to go with us. And the king sort of suspects something. And David is beginning to wise up maybe, but not too much. And he says, why should he go with you? But Amnon keeps on, and he manages. he's David's favorite, and he manages to pull the wool over David's eyes, and no pun intended with the sheep-shearing thing. Um, now, Absalom commanded his servants to watch for Amnon, and when he got drunk, this is verse 28, then kill him. Take him aside and, and kill him. And as soon as this happens, then what we read is a, a couple of verses later 
is that the news gets out in verse 30, Absalom has killed all the king's sons. So in verse 29, we read, when this happens, all the king's sons flee. Why do they flee? Because they think this is a political coup, that he's going to kill all the sons. This has happened before in Israel's history. This, this happened uh, with the son of, of Gideon, uh, Abimelech. And he killed all of, his, all of Gideon's other sons to clear the way to, uh, to the uh, inheritance. So they immediately flee, and they flee on mules because mules are what you need in that rough country, in the hill country of, of Judea. And so they flee, and then when the king hears it, verse 31, he arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all of his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Now compare that to what David did after the baby died. After the baby died, he had been doing that. But when the baby died, he then uh, prayed to God, rejoiced that that baby was now with God. But when Amnon died, just like later when Absalom dies, he just goes in this grief. And I think there was a lot of guilt associated with that grief because he knew that he had brought this on his own family through his own uh, immoral conduct. And at this point, Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, answers and says, let, my, uh, let not my lord uh, suppose that all the young men, all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. And so at this point, um, uh, Absalom flees, goes to Geshur where he's there for three years, then when he, David allows him to come back to Jerusalem, David won't talk to him for two years. So five years goes by when they won't talk, and it's during that time that Absalom is going to build his conspiracy. But he flees to Geshur to his um, grandfather, and this is really going to a foreign power to, for, for protection. And so you, then you, now you get into all these political undertones and all of this conspiracy going on, and all this is driven by the uh, sex lust of Amnon. It's driven by the power lust of Absalom. And it's going to lead to, to tremendous disasters and negative consequences for all the nation of Israel. Because during this rebellion of Absalom, everybody's going to suffer because of one man's sin, and that's Absalom's sin. So sin has its consequences, and we just can't control what those consequences are going to be. So we'll come back next time and continue with our study of what happens with Absalom and going into the uh, Absalom conspiracy. Uh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, and, and this, this touches each of us because we know that we may not sin to the degree that Amnon and Absalom has sinned, but we see that potential in our own sin nature. We understand the reality that our sins can destroy everything that's dear to us, and we know that the only hope and solution is just to walk with you, walk with the Holy Spirit, uh, let your word just, just control our lives. And Father, we pray that you might keep us mindful of that ever before our thinking, that we're to be walking with you and not giving in to the lusts of our sin nature. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.